John. Luke. Hey, dude. Oh, sorry. I'm I'm right outside your bathroom door. Let us in. There's also a werewolf. It sounds like there's a whole pack of them. I know. Yeah, there's several. I'm smelting silver in here, boys. Get in here. Whew. All right, Luke, I made you the silver knife. It's a plus one dagger, sweet. Yes. It's a werewolf Josh, sling, you get, you get a silver cudgel. Cudgel. Or shillelagh. Silver shillelagh. Ah. What do you have, dude? Yeah. Uh, a silver spear. Axe. Silver axe. Silver. Oh, I was going to say that uh, looks like an axe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're well equipped to take care of this werewolf should it show up again. But while we're waiting for that. How about we talk about some stories? <laughs> I just read a couple on the drive over to Nebraska. <laughs> no, I had to drive the whole way. <laughs> I read them out loud. I'm glad you read them out loud. Josh. How many werewolves did you see on the drive? <laughs> we didn't see any, but we've heard several. Okay. Hey, John, uh, maybe you read the same stories that we did. Did you happen Let's... to read uh, The Damned Thing by Ambrose Bierce and Blackwood's Baby by Laird Barron? Unfortunately, no. Those are not the stories I read when oh, I read. Man. <laughs> what did you read? Uh, they were like My Little Pony fan fiction. Uh, those are scary. But tonight, <laughs> we are going to stick to two masters of the horror short story. The first, as Luke pointed out, Ambrose Bierce in The Damned Thing. And the second, Laird Baron and Blackwood's Baby. But before that, John, what you drinking? Wild Turkey 101. Sweet, dude. It's the color of fall. <laughs> Ambery, yeah. delicious, sweetie. Nice. That color. Amber. It yeah. really is a, a, a dark-hued bourbon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certainly. It's the color of my soul, I assume. Mm-hmm. Caramel? Yeah. Caramel. Caramel. Is, that, is that what your soul tastes like? I don't think it tastes like caramel. I think it tastes like mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm drinking. How about you? Savory instead mm. of sweet. Yeah. It fills, right. fills you right up. Makes you feel like you've been at home. Uh, I'm having a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. Uh, we've already sang praises of this beer. It's one of mine and Luke's favorites. And uh, I feel like, you know, it is not even yet October. Wait, it is Cromtober. It is. These are going to not even be here by the time Halloween rolls around. They're going to have Christmas ales and and winter warmers and things like that. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to get a case of the bottles. I love the cans of that beer, but it, the bottles are what are around. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to get a, a case and just put it in the garage and just like pop a couple in the fridge every so often. Mm-hmm. Savor that. Have it around for Thanksgiving. That's right. <laughs> what are you sipping on there, sir? I have uh, Rowan's Creek uh, Straight Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey. It's another uh, high proof, you know, it's a 100 proof uh, whiskey. It actually says it's 100.1 proof, whatever the hell that is. That's all marketing, right? <laughs> this is, this bottle, like, this is really good bourbon and I like it. But also, though, I'm a little bit put off by how, like, Etsy etsy the label is it's it's like uh it's like you had the scissors that cut the wavy line mm-hmm. and you took like sepia tone paper and you printed printed it on your your ink 
your laser your laser jet printer. Ashley printed that on her cricket. <laughs> exactly. And then you like cut it so it's curvy lines and you stick it on there slightly askew so it looks like artisanal. Mm-hmm. Uh that's kind of <laughs> what they've done with this bottle. I like that. Whatever. Font. It's it's fine. The bourbon really is kick-ass. It's hard to tell what exactly it is. It says, original small batch bourbon, handmade in Kentucky, aged in charred oak barrels, hand-bottled, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's hard to tell exactly where, like, like what the, com- the component bourbons are of it, but it's, it's legit. I mean, it's a Kentucky, like, small batch blend bourbon, I think, like, of some type. Uh, it's good. It's good for the old-fashioned, which is how I'm drinking it. I don't mean to rip on it too bad. Dream? Do you ever have a daydream fantasy about owning your own uh, distillery? I think that would be boss, man. What's it called? Yeah, what would you call it, Luke? When I was an <laughs> undergrad, an assignment we had was like to do a non for like a non timber forest products project, and so what I pitched was using eastern red cedar, which is not like actual juniper. It's like uh, uh, it's a different it's a different it's a different species. Eastern red cedar is not like legit juniper. juniper berries but my thinking was i was in arkansas i could make my own like arkansas gin and i would use like eastern <laughs> red cedar as like the the juniper flavor for that and so i was gonna get like cheap ass vodka and then like you know age it making gin but you don't have a name for your your gin distillery no i don't have a name for it well, we, josh what would you call your bourbon distillery um i'm gonna call it the uh I don't know. I don't know. You put me on the spot. I was thinking Sorry. about Luke's gin. <laughs> How tasty it would be. Mm-hmm. Would you it call would it like, down your throat? What, like the Black Goat Lodge? Like Black Goat Wol- Gin? Wolf's Vale. Wolf's Vale bourbons. Um, select. That sounds like a- I mean, I totally would do like the, uh, the, the pro, like, like colored animal bourbon. That's, I would do that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the Purple Cat. Yeah. Purple Cat Lounge. The, uh, <laughs> like, Gray Fox bourbon. Mm. Silver That's Fox. a good name, yeah. The Silver Foxes Fox. are Kentuckian. Yeah. Uh-huh. The Black Squirrel. The Black Squirrel whiskey. Mike oh. and I have always had a plan of we would have Monarch Distillery with Monarch bourbon and then Viceroy rye. Nice. Oh. Butterflies. I like it. Yeah. 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 Cool. Sorry, Mike, for for letting our idea out into the world. Dude. <laughs> Someone's going to take that and run with it. A couple it. other entomologists uh, are going to take that shit and just go with it. I wonder how many entomologists listen to our show. If you're an entomologist and you listen to the show, email us. Yep, let us know. But for now, we have to get into one thing. the one thing charlie brown (laughs) oh rats (laughs) good grief good grief i got it wrong luke what's your one thing my one thing is another horror anthology it's 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 a cromptober time uh i will admit at this at the time of recording this is an aspirational one thing because i'm still working through the horror hall of fame book and indeed the the damn thing is a story that's within within that book uh this is one that i've just started started getting into though and and throughout october i intend to be reading both uh that previous anthology and this current one prime evil uh to get 
get some good doses of horror over the over the month of October. So this is, uh, I guess, psychological horror and a mix of like the late '80s horror writers of the day. So of course, there's a Stephen King story. This has Night Flyer in it. There's a Dennis Etchison story. There's a Clive Barker story. There's a Peter Straub story. There's a Thomas Ligotti, Ramsey Campbell. A lot of like you know who's who within the horror world. Uh, the reason I bought this is because I had read at least on the too much horror fiction, uh, blog that there's a couple stories that really are standouts. Apparently this orange is for anguish. Blue is for insanity story by David Morrell is like awesome sauce. And so I bought it basically to have that little novella, uh, as something to read. So that's, that's a big one. And then there's a couple other stories that are pretty well reviewed too within this. I know that the, the night flyer story by Stephen King isn't necessarily him at the top of his game, but this is uh this is one of those anthologies that comes up over and over again as a you know a must read uh horror anthology from the eighties or nineties and it was cheap. I got it at half price for like, you know, for three and a half bucks, uh just as a beater coffee. So that's my one thing. I think Night Flyer is actually pretty well loved by, oh, really? by, the, by the King uh fandom. Oh, okay. I'm I'm not sh- sure, but my my impression is uh that that, that is that, that is true. I've never read it. Cool. Yeah, I, I haven't either. I mean, I know I know the the gist of the story, uh, but uh, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I got one. I got one for you. What is it, dude? So I've been interested in correcting a uh, a flaw in my movie watching history, and that is I really haven't seen all that many Universal monster movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, you and I, uh, well, you hosted a Halloween party one year. We watched The Wolfman. Yeah. Uh, I've seen Dracula. I've seen a Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen Bride of Frankenstein, which is my favorite currently. Um, let's see. I've seen The Invisible Man. But many of the sequels, mm-hmm. uh, uh, apart from Bride of Franken- Frankenstein, that is, I've never seen. So, you know, uh, House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein. So there is a world of universal monster movies that I haven't seen. And so I'm going to make it my goal for October to uh, double the number of universal monster movies that I've watched. Um, And all of this kind of spins out of a discussion on a relatively recent episode of Trick or Treat Radio, where uh, our friend Dynamo Mars counted down his top favorite uh universal films and uh i already sort of let mine out of the bag and that is uh um perennial favorite bride of frankenstein i wanted to ask you guys what your favorite universal movies were i like the wolfman the best it's my favorite as far as the setting uh when people say that bride of frankenstein's their favorite i i get that but I like the Wolfman and I like the, the OG Frankenstein as my faves. Gotcha. I pull for Frankenstein. There was, a, I've always liked the Frankenstein's monster and I dressed up as him as Halloween a couple times and he, I was always tall. So I always identified with him <laughs> and my grandpa was always a big fan of those universal movies. And that was the first one he really told me about. And I guess that maybe sort of made an impression on me. And that's why it's, it's a part of my favorite movies. Good. Uh, 
I really kind of feel like this is a gap in my movie knowledge. So I've got to correct it. So my, my one thing is a, a goal, a promise uh, to watch <laughs> more Universal Monster movies this October. I'm excited that my local Alamo is playing some Hammer movies because I feel the same about the Hammer horror films. Yeah, no, me too. Um, yeah, I've I've seen a handful of the Christopher Lee uh, Dracula films, and that's almost it. I I have seen The Devil Rides Out, and I noticed that that's one of the films that's playing. Yeah, yeah, you should you should check that one out. Okay, I'll put that on the list. It's pretty cool. Uh, I think you'll dig it. It's one of the few times that Christopher Lee is not a villain. Well, that is intriguing in of itself. Yeah. Yeah. He's pretty cool in it as he is in pretty much everything he's ever been in. <laughs> How about you, John? You got a thing? I do. Uh, my one thing is a book that's part of a time life series. It's called Phantom Encounters. I read it since we were doing some ghostly sort of spooky stories tonight and time life put out this. It's like a whole, it's like an encyclopedia set of sort of supernatural books back in like 87, 88, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And they, they range from hauntings to UFOs to ancient wisdoms of secret sex and phantom encounters and psychics and all kinds of craziness. And I was at half price books this time last year and they had almost the whole thing. And it was marked down from like one ten to $45 so they desperately wanted to unload it, and I bought the whole set. Wow, <laughs> nice, dude. dude. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and so I pick through it every now and then when I want some sort of paranormal, supernatural goodness. And Phantom Encounters is just all about ghosts and ghosts in the British Isles and people telling their ghost stories and people telling their stories about faking ghost encounters. There's this whole section about this guy that used to help make fake ghosts for plays. And he unveiled his technique at a at a showing of the uh, the Charles Dickens Christmas, um, like Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol. Thank you. <laughs> he he helped to make the first projected fake uh, Jacob Marley and all that kind of stuff. Cool. Hmm. So there's a little section in there about him. It's just a really it's a quick flip through and you get all these different stories. So I, I enjoy flipping through those every now and then, and I've got almost all of them now. So I'm still trying to track down a couple of the last few of it. I'm afraid that once I complete the set, that something evil will beset me besides the werewolves, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't, don't forget about this. (laughs) Cool. Uh, well, you'll have to post a, a photo of your, time life acquisition at some point oh it's a sweet collection I've a, dude i've got a weird shelf on it's the bottom shelf of my bookcase so my future children can crawl around and find it easily nice dude <laughs> <laughs> so they're gonna read your weird books before they learn to walk that's right that's what i'm hoping for gotcha um and they will uh pull out those books they'll search for an esoteric spell they'll cast the runes and do the ritual and summon forth one day. Cool. All right. Uh, you guys want to get into some stories? I do want to get into some, some stories. Scary stories. Do you? I like guess that's what we do stories. on here, right? <laughs> that's the Cromtober way. It's our thing, man. Let's get into Ambrose Beers. We'll go in chronological order. 
Uh, this is an older tale. This is uh, published, I have here, in 1891. Uh, yep. I in guess... A, in a, in a, uh, uh, a periodical that I'd never heard of before. What is that? Uh, I have in my notes that it's called Tales from New York Town Topics, um, the December 7th, 1893 issue. Cool. Yeah, and this this is a magazine that just kind of posted uh, uh, stories, uh, news, uh, kind of local gossip, that kind of thing, uh, which is a, a weird thing to think of prior to the 20th century, but that that's there was still a market for that even then. Maybe that would explain the, the funky, like, chapter titles for it uh, maybe uh so according to within the 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 short forward within the the horror hall of fame volume that i have here the silverberg and i guess greenberg whoever whoever wrote this they say uh the damn thing is by no means the first story to suggest the existence of invisible beings having been been preceded in print by fitz james o'brien's what was it and uh maupassant's the horla but the mm-hmm. mindless ferocity of bierce's monster distinguishes it from its predecessors and conveys an almost literal image of men grappling with the unfathomable unfathomable mysteries of the unknown and i think that's true like i've listened most recently i listened to uh tales to terrify has a reading of this story and so i listened to it yesterday and a couple weeks ago i had actually read it out of this volume and i'd read this story one other time previously so at this point, I think I'm I've, I've listened or read to the, read the story three times over, mm-hmm. and it gets spookier with each reading. Like I've I've clued in on on more of the 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 horror of the unknown. It sets in with me. How do you guys think about this story, John? I dug it. I mean, it's it's a quick snippet, but it's definitely the, there's a there's a bit of that unknowable sort of mystery that, that brings you into this sort of fiction and, uh, Ambrose Bierce. I mean, you can't beat this, this guy's mustache. So he's definitely a cool guy. And I was excited that we were including him in Cromptober. Yeah, I agree. I think that, uh, this story reminded me strongly of, uh, Lovecraft's the color out of space, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in terms of the monster being, uh, just beyond our ability to really perceive it. Right. Um, but I think doesn't H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, The Invisible Man, predate this story too? Uh, that I don't know. I think it does. Just maybe just by well, maybe I have it in my notes here. Yeah. So Invisible Man came out in 1897, and this actually came out in 1893. Right. So this actually predates The Invisible Man. Okay. So, but it fits into that sort of uh, pedigree of some invisible force that is just outside of your, your knowledge outside of your ability to perceive it. And um, I think it really works pretty well in terms of setting and in terms of monster. Yeah. This is Lovecraftian before Lovecraftian is a thing, right? Like the, there's a description or two in here about seeing things that don't necessarily jive with how you understand perception. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, and like, the the description is you see a tree that's amongst a group of other trees and the one tree is closer and so the resolution of said tree is is finer and you can see more detail and it doesn't jive with the thing that's in the backdrop so your sense of depth is all thrown askew 
I really connected with that description. And that to me is like when Lovecraft is laying down the most unsettling uh, descriptions of how the world actually functions and you just are, you're feeling adrift. This nails it. And this, this predates a lot of that. And so I don't know. I think this is a really unsettling story uh, beyond the face value of a man's like a man being mauled and you being told about this monster attack. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's all the more haunting when you know more details about Beers himself. Mm-hmm. So John, tell us a little bit about Ambrose Beers. I, you know, I've always been intrigued by Ambrose and, or Mr. Beers, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> that's, mis- that's Mr. Beers. <laughs> he's an Ohioan by birth. But uh, he grew up in a part of Indiana that I actually spent a lot of time in. He grew up in a place called Kosciuszko County, Indiana, and around the area called Warsaw. And it's a really cool area of Indiana. And I spent a lot of time camping up there around the lake, Dewart Lake. And he he and his parents kind of lived there for a long time. They were really poor folks, but they really wanted him to read. And they promoted that sort of literary character within him. And... He actually served in Indiana's infantry during the Union or during the Civil War for the Union and just had a really fascinating life. Fought in wars. He had asthma his whole life, which I also identify with. And he spent some time even here in Omaha, Nebraska. So I feel like I'm following Ambrose Pierce's <laughs> ghost around a little bit. Well, but uh, can't, Don't go to Mexico. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a journalist. He was very well known for his journalism during his life. He wrote some cool things like the Devil's Dictionary that's really considered sort of a masterpiece of of American writing. And the other story that we had sort of bandied about and is is probably his most famous is an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. He's just he's had a huge impact on people like Ernest Hemingway and H.P. Lovecraft. So definitely a cool guy. His end of his life is sort of the thing that's always fascinated me the most, which is he was 71 years old. And he left Washington, D.C. and went on a tour of Civil War battlefields and then headed down to Mexico to join Pancho Villa's army as an observer. He was going to be – this is like gonzo journalism almost. He's sort mm-hmm. of a Hunter S. Thompson a little bit. He's going to hang out with Pancho Villa and write about the war down in Mexico. And he got down as far as Chihuahua and then sent a letter that was dated December 26, 1913. And he said, as to me, I leave here tomorrow for an unknown destination. Following this, he vanished without a trace. (laughs) That's just, you can't write it better than that. At like 71, which is crazy. But I mean, he was clearly spry. (laughs) Like he was, he was out. He was, he was adventuring and reporting even, you know, at that point in time, like like when you would assume there would be a slacking off as far as adventuring and roaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he, does, kept, he kept on doing it till the very end. There is some question about whether he actually went to Mexico, though. Oh, uh, really? Did you guys read some of that? Mm-mm. I read that there, that, well, it's because no one really knows what happens to him, right? Right. And so right. it's it's easy to sort of not take this at face value, but... but what what are some of the controversies? Well, there's a guy named Walter Nial who is a biographer of Beers and said that he was suffering from so much prob- so many problems with his asthma that he didn't think 
as a 71-year-old asthmatic he could get to Mexico and that he had been really critical of Pancho Villa, so it didn't make sense that he could join up with him necessarily, that it seems kind of unlikely. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have any evidence that he didn't go to Mexico, but he also states that there is a lack of hard evidence that Bierce ended up there. But the oral tradition is that he went down there and was executed by a firing squad in a town cemetery near Sierra Mojada. So who knows, right? That's, right. that's the cool part. <laughs> that is the cool part. And it it really, from the limited Ambrose Bierce that I've read, it seems like the end of his life mirrors strongly the style of ending that he liked to sort of play out in his stories. Good point. So it's cool to me, like, like this guy, uh, he wrote, he was incredibly productive in terms of like popular stories and stories that, that are now famous. He wrote them within a relatively short amount of time. Like one of the things that at the front end of the, uh, the, the tells to terrify episode of the damn thing, they, they give a, a brief recounting of Ambrose Bierce's story, his life story. And so he wrote uh, most of his most famous stories over a span of just about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was, you know, uh, a gonzo badass reporter of, of like wide acclaim. So he went from coast to coast. He went West coast. Then he went back. He went over to DC, you know, and was doing a lot of different things, but it's crazy to think that a man, like he fought in the battle of Shiloh. Right. He was injured in another battle. It seems like he, like, I can't remember for sure the official term, but he did like cartography, type stuff within the civil war like Mm. he was he was i think we can get into this with uh with baron's character luke honey kind of like an educated uh peasant like the the Mm. way like his his upbringing and so it's cool to have that juxtaposition of the sophisticated man of of like relatively low means but he sort of raises himself up and becomes like a crazy adventurer Mm -hmm. uh just his story and the fact that he must have had like crazy life experiences that informed a relatively short period of like writing of fictional stories. It's, it's really just pretty fascinating. And then he went on to do all kinds of crazy reporting and did like great journalistic things that, you know, he was a watchdog of the government and Mm -hmm. he was engaged within the political theater of the time. So I don't know. He's, he's one of those, people that you must have think like he was like the most interesting man of the world like in the yeah. world right <laughs> he was he was really yeah. that caliber type person like the stories he could tell right yeah absolutely Maybe that was him in those commercials <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh yeah it, it must have been something to hear uh beers tell a tell a story while he's having a uh, a little bit of whiskey you know on a on a cold october evening Maybe he's here with us tonight. Maybe, John. So but let's talk about the damn thing. The very damn thing. What is chapter one titled, Luke? Uh, you don't always eat what's on the table. That's right. right. Something, I just pulled that out of my butt. No, no, <laughs> is you're that right. right? That one, <laughs> one does not always eat what is on the table. I thought that these titles were a little bit like the the black cards that appear between scenes in Frasier. <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah. Uh, o- but only if if that strategy was used in an episode of The Addams Family. Because yeah. <laughs> they're very macabre, right? It's, it's very macabre. We so. open by the light of a tallow candle, which had been placed on the end of a rough table, and a man is reading something written in a book. 
What mm-hmm. kind of book is it, Josh? I think it's a diary. Is, is it like a healthy-looking diary? New? No. Part, it's, part, partially used? It's partially used. It looks like someone took a bite out of a corner of it. It's pretty ratty. <laughs> it's been through the ringer. There's a bunch of people in this room, though. There's shadows. And besides the reader, there are eight other men present. Mm-hmm. Seven of them sat against rough log walls, silent and motionless. And the room being small, not very far from the table. But who's the last guy? Who's the eighth guy? Uh, the eighth guy is the coroner. Is that who you're talking about? Or oh, I was talking about the dead guy. Oh, oh okay. Oh. Uh, and Okay, yeah. And the the eighth guy is the man splayed upon the table. Dead. And that's what you shouldn't eat. Nope, don't eat that. <laughs> so it's 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 not ponderous here, but there's a lot of table setting that goes on here. There's, there's a lot of good. <laughs> that, that was pretty good. <laughs> you have descriptions of these people that are within the room. It slowly unravels that we have the coroner who's here, sort of. He's the authority, and he's directing questions towards a younger man whose name is William Harker, and. And I think the little bit of humor that's this doled out here within this uh, within this very first chapter is like I don't know why it strikes me so funny, but the whole like uh, this person reveals that they're an author and they like to write stories, and the coroner says I sometimes read them stories that is, and then the guy says thank you, and he says stories in general not yours, and some of the jurors laughed, and it says. Against a somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily, and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. I think that is some of like the most spot-on prose in such a, a, a narrow bit of text. It just it just nails the the scene here. That like I really did laugh out loud the first time I read this story at that instance of of that joke because it's such a uh, a piss on the the <laughs> the author that's that's like 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 taking the compliment and trying to be like uh what's the like like grateful and and responsive He's magnanimous. Yeah, magnanimous. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's like we're just getting on with the situation and the morbidity of it. You're just like laughing in the face of like existential death, right? Like I don't know, it gets at that that just here in the first chapter, I don't know. It's <laughs> that joke alone to me just really nails the first couple pages of the story. Mm-hmm. So Harker is a city slicker. We know that because Not of a his vampire hunter, right? Uh, we know that because of his dress. He's he's wearing uh, city clothes that are covered in dust from the road, um, and he says he is a, an author, as Luke points out. And he says that he's he's late because he wanted to relate the events that have transpired in an article and he wanted to write it and get it out there. Um, But he knew that he would have to publish it under the auspices of being a fiction because no one would believe the incredible thing that has happened. And then he begins to recount that story in chapter two, what may happen in a field of wild oats. And so basically we have this writer 
who's laying in with the fellow that's now out cold on the table. Uh, and he's going on a hunting on a hunting expedition. The way it's worded is he's going to, to fish and shoot, maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they go, I guess, like long story short, they go out and the man is set upon and he's attacked by something that seems to be invisible here. And this gets at the description that's relayed uh, to the to the larger quorum of men that are out in in front of him here. That's the that's the description that I was talking about about perception and and seeing things that just don't jive with how you would interpret the way that the world works. Basically, there's something invisible that's moving through the grass that comes up towards them and ultimately attacks and kills uh, his host. Right, uh, and so as that as that plays out, it's really this unsettling first-person perspective that's uh, unraveled. They only have uh, shotguns with birdshot. They don't have anything that can withstand or, or that can deal punishment out to this uh, big monster. And so he fires his uh, his gun and is just destroyed. And the the attack scene is brutal. But some of the details I thought were really interesting, like we see from Harker's perspective, there are portions of Morgan's body that are somewhat obscured by something that Harker cannot see. Yeah. And ultimately he is, his throat's ripped out. It's later revealed. Uh, and so the last, the last statement here that we have from the, the, the witness is for a moment only I stood irre irresolute then throwing down my gun i ran forward to my friend's assistance i had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or from some form of convulsion before i could reach his side he was down and quiet uh all sounds had ceased but with a feeling of such terror as even these awful events had not transpired i now saw again the mysterious movement of the wild oats that should almost be italicized. It's not here in the text here, but, <laughs> but in Lovecraftian terms, that was, that's, that's what should, <laughs> the movement of the wild oats that should be italicized, uh, prolonging itself from trampled area about the prostrate man toward the edge of the wood. He was dead. So, so with, with little fanfare, it's, it's revealed. This death is, is doled out here at the end, but the whole like fight is is like two wrestlers only you can only see one right so it's uh it's pretty fearsome and so chapter three is entitled a man through naked a man though naked may be in rags and so it's weird because there are there are bits and pieces of jokes interspersed within this story and then there's bits of cosmic horror that are introduced and then the way this third chapter starts it's just it's pretty stark right like you see a man wrestling with an inv- invisible figure but you're kind of saved some of the descriptions of the the overall damage but the way that things play out in the third chapter basically involves like the removal of a handkerchief and then you see a throat ripped open wide basically is is how it's how it's played here and it looks like a man's just been beat beat to death right uh and so it's horrific to the point that people are revolt like they're in revulsion and so uh you see the final the the end result of this encounter and it's it really is jarring the way this story is structured it's so short that it kind of hits you just it it pummels you like (laughs) in 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 chapter two and chapter three the way that it sort of sets in uh and then 
chapter four is kind of like the the overall like here's the full story of of everything being revealed but chapter two and three are are pretty abrasive and the third one specifically is is pretty over the top yeah everyone is is kind of holding back their bile trying not to throw up from the the sights that the coroner is showing them and it it seemed to me that i wonder how much of this ambrose beers was riding with kind of a, a wry grin on his face um just how brazen this coroner is when he's pulling off the the cloth that covers up the the deceased's neck and you see the wound and then he pulls out his clothes which are covered in blood and he's he's just showing you one horrible thing after the next and it it just it's it's you know he's trying to is he trying to gross these people out is what i i was wondering but clearly he's trying to make an argument with an economy of words that there is no supernatural explanation for this how does he say that Morgan died, John? They ultimately settle on a cougar, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mountain lion attack. Right. Puma. Puma. <laughs> right. How many synonyms can we think of? Jaguar. So that gets into the explanation from the tomb, Luke. You said that this kind of lays everything out. Yeah, uh, and so we get a bit of the diary that it's revealed that there's the, the man's journal is in the coroner's hands, but he's not going to like bequeath it over to the to the, to the writer, right? And so it's not something that that he has access to, but we get a glimpse of the fuller story. And so so as it happens, the witness to the death is pulled there intentionally as like a, a trustworthy set of eyes because the the deceased has been seeing things that aren't quite right he's mm-hmm. and 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 he uh ultimately is murdered by that by that damned thing which in base terms is invisible because it's outside of the the spectrum of human comprehension the the colors of it just aren't right right and so that gets at that that lovecraftian color out of space bit that that gets pulled in here right uh it's just it's terrifying the way that it's explained because in real terms, there are all kinds of things that we cannot comprehend that are just out of our reach as far as our perception. And this lays that fact bare that there could be something that's going to beat us to death and rip our throat out (laughs) that we can't see. So what is, is that the horror in the story? Do you guys think? Is 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 uh, as as Luke outlined it there the the last chapter is that the scary part of the story to you guys? It is to me that there's something beyond our vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that there's things that can harm us and are beyond our reach physically is always terrifying. Yeah, I agree, but there was something that sort of stuck with me more than that after the, after I finished the story. And that is the coroner was reading this. So the coroner knows the truth, but for whatever reason, he's covering it up, right? Like he doesn't let anyone else read the, the narrative. Right. So you think he's like a man in black? Why? No, I, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. 
you know, and this gets into all kinds of meta text and, and speculation, but it made me wonder, you know, how many people in this region, in this area have died because of this invisible thing and the coroner is covering it up. Why? What's his angle? Like I, I couldn't get past at the end of the story why the coroner was acting so weird about the the di- the diary that that contains uh, a narrative that corroborates what Harker told everybody. And so the the invisible monster, yes, that's scary to me, but the the person the human the in in the guise of the coroner um who knows the truth but is keeping it secret for what purpose we don't know kind of resonated with me in a in a way that uh i i think the story is going to stick with me for a while i think it's the resistance to the unknown like the safer assumption is that like on uh, if we were faced with this type of story in real terms we would re- we would be resistant to the 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 evidence at hand that it would be unbelievable okay uh i mean i say i say we just like generally speaking the fact that the the man is saying i saw something invisible kill this man and the fact that there's a diary that says there's something invisible that's out there and i'm going to bring another guy over t- so that he can so he can see it and vouch for it the coroner is a man of science. He's not. He's not a man of faith. <laughs> he's a man of science, <laughs> and so he is resistant to that. And so I don't take it that he's necessarily covering anything up. I think that he's looking to be to to to, to put the nails in the coffin and to uh, continue down the the clearest, cleanest road to move past this. And as a consequence, he has like he's the dude. Uh, that has the newspaper clippings and the stories from the uncle and all of the other bits and pieces in in Call of Cthulhu, but but resists putting those pieces together and like providing it to the world. He's mm. the one that just sort of sweeps it under the rug. Okay, that's that's how I interpreted it. So I didn't necessarily see it as a nefarious effort on the part of the coroner, more that it was a. I'm not gonna read. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, look into this any any deeper than I need to. And they're just they're just Looney Tunes. And I think both of those both of those um, explanations for the coroner are you know they're different, but they're equally terrifying in in different yeah, ways. Yeah, certainly. He's got a 100 percent case clear rate. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. He's not gonna mess that up. So it sounds like we all enjoyed this one. Yeah, I love this story. I think it's I think it's really unsettling and I think it's 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 perfect. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think it's concise. It tells a story with a with with enough table setting that there's like it's just it's just butt tons of mood uh and there's enough characterization to drive the plot, but it's not it's clearly not a a character heavy story. It's all about the plot and the reveal. Mhm. And I'm I'm glad that he that Beers kind of he puts forward a you know pseudoscientific explanation for the the monster um, without trying to get into too much detail about how it works like just enough for mm-hmm. you to, to capture your imagination to to allow you to uh, 
take what he said and what you know about physics and optics and kind of extrapolate from there. So I, I, I agree. I think this is a tight story. John, what did you think about it? Definitely tight, short, but uh, full of dread. Dread. Cool. Let's get into the Laird Baron story. I think it's serendipitously uh, Ambrose Bierce is actually name dropped in the La- in the Laird Baron story that That's we're right. covering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that wasn't intentional, uh, but at least the conception of linking these two stories together, like I th- we had thought about hunters going out on 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 a hunting trip <laughs> at least that was a linkage that i had in my head and so pleasantly there were some some common themes here between these two stories but they're pretty different too though mm-hmm. in terms of like what kind of scariness they get into so i think these are good choices to have like adventuring uh hunting rambling camper dudes out doing hunting stuff <laughs> but to get to different different overall points of the stories. It's interesting because both of these stories certainly fit into that whole Lovecraftian mythos mood, but they both kind of follow the, the Howardian approach to get you into that mood. I agree. Like the, the characters are, are not weak willed They're They don't pass out. They're not driven mad. They are less Lovecraft and more Howard. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so too. These are, I mean, it's an oversimplification to call them like tough guy kind of stories, but notably they are, they are very masculine in their delivery, right? Like is there, there there's Naya, Naya woman presented in either of these two stories. Mm-hmm. It is very much, uh, hitting on a lot of the, the masculine tropes that we would tend to affiliate with like Howard and beyond that, like the the adventuring, ranging, like barbaric and non civilized sort of like frontier, like the frontier is a, yeah. is a focal point and is a is a is a character within within the stories. Yeah. So, Blackwood's Baby first published in Ghosts by Gaslight in the year two thousand eleven by Laird Barron. John, have you ever read anything by Laird Barron before? Just this story. I've first heard about Laird Baron from Luke, and I was kind of curious how he got into him. You know, I was just getting into a lot of the contemporary, like, short horror fiction that was out there, and so I started reading, like, the Ellen Datlow, like, uh, horror, like, horror anthologies, and so his stuff just came up over and over again, and about the same time that, uh, that I started reading those best of anthologies, uh, the beautiful thing that awaits us all had been out for about a year. And so I had found that as like a cool, like specific author anthology, like a collection to pick up. And so that's the, that's the first collection of his that I read. And this is like the opener to that. And so it just blew my mind, but, but just generally he, uh, his short fiction is just, it's just got grit. It's it's a great, great sort of horror mixed with noir, like contemporary, uh, uh, weird fiction. That I mean, he's widely lauded as like one of the one of the finest like writers around today doing the the short horror fiction. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you describe him to us a little bit? I mean, I know he's our new tweet pal, but can you <laughs> tell the listeners a little bit about Laird Baron? 
Uh, I mean, he's Alaskan. He writes a lot about the Pacific Northwest. That's kind of what he knows, uh, at least according to his own mythology. And I don't know. I don't know specifics because he he's I think he's one of those guys that likes to mix myth with the real. And maybe I don't want to like he, he has an eye patch and maybe that comes from an early bout with cancer. Maybe that comes from fighting a bear. I'm not totally for sure. On, on what the explanation there is, but maybe he ran the Iditarod. He lived in Alaska for a while. He's a, a lover of dogs, so I'm sure we could get into a, a deep, dark well of talking about our pooches <laughs> <laughs> with, with him. Uh, he He's a lover of all things noir. I have read that he, like, he acknowledges uh, Zelazny as, like, one of his formative... Uh, like touchstones for his writing, and I've not read a lot of Zelazny. I just recently read the first book with the like the Nine Princes and Amber, and I guess I can see that just with the quick sort of like private eye noir sensibility that comes across in Laird Baron's stories. But I haven't read a lot of Zelazny's other stuff. But I can I can see that connection, uh, and of course, like as this story gets at, there's a lot of reliance upon cosmic horror as like the the primary vehicle of dread. Like (laughs) what is any one man within the scope of eternity? That's, that's a scary thing to ponder. And he, he likes to ponder that within his work. He also strikes me as someone who likes to use characters that are flawed in some way. Like, you know, many, many of the, the formative pulps, the, the, the characters that we've talked about, the, they're paragons of, of some thing. Either they are uh, the strongest or the fastest or the smartest or whatever. Right. Um, and and in, in some cases, that intelligence ends up being their undoing in some of the more uh, uh, horrific pulp tales, right? Uh, right. In the Lovecraft vein. Um, but the, the stories by Laird Bear and I've read, the characters are not really the the dudes that you would want to hang out with right like they're they are social outcasts for the most part uh, or, or or deeply kind of uh i don't want to say disturbed but maybe that is a good word for it like there's some some element of their past has created a lot of angst in their present and certainly that can be said for luke honey in this story yeah, he is a haunted man. Like that is, he has his demons that 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 are the primary drivers of his own horror. Right? Like there's horror that everybody else is experiencing, but ultimately the scary thing to Luke Honey is different than the scary thing that everybody else sees in the story. How do we want to do this? Do we want to break it down by the the place settings that we're given and discuss it scene by scene? Yeah, I think we can I think we can quickly move through like because the plot develops first in Africa, then at the lodge, then out in the woods. And yeah. it's kind of like phase 1 in the lo- in the woods with the larger group, phase 2 with uh Scobie and the loss of his uh of his nephew, right? Like whatever whatever I got his the impression that it was his son, his but son. yeah, some some young relative. And then the the final sort of like like epilogue to the to to everything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah, I mean we can quickly sort of talk about that because it does become confounded, right? Like you, things yeah. blur. You get mixes of dreams and reality playing out here. But 
But just generally, this almost opens like a like a Western tale, mm-hmm. but it's not the West. It's it's revealed that this is Africa, but Luke Honey is, and and according to Laird Barron, he said himself that this this character is kind of like the boy in Blood Meridian that's that's raised in a different set of circumstances, uh, and has ended up a big game hunter. Uh, just by happenstance and has ended up over in Africa, but, mm-hmm. but we're, we're at a cantina. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's very much like a, like a border town type setting. And, and this old dog is getting like called back to, to one more hunt is kind of like the, the setting that's laid out. We also had, we actually do have a couple of female characters, right? Who, uh, look disapprovingly at Luke Honey. As they uh, walk by him while he's drinking whiskey in the early hours of the morning, right. it seems. Uh, but he is haunted, as Luke said. He doesn't sleep well. He has nightmares. Galtero, who's the owner of this boarding house, wants him to go. Uh, and then he gets a telegram, right, John? Yeah, he's getting called back to the States for a hunt. And it seems like there's nothing left in Africa for him except nightmares and whiskey so he kind of decides that he's going to go. It seems at the outset that it's a very simple decision for him to make. Yeah. And he's going to head out on a, on a plane, on a train, on a boat, and eventually set foot back in America for the first time in quite some time. Yeah, like seven years. It's, it's a biblical portion of time that's, a, that's passed, right, uh, since he's been in Africa doing the big game hunting lifestyle. But he doesn't take the relish in it, and he's not necessarily the – the the American bravosi that 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 the Afrikaners see amongst amongst them, right? Like the other American big like great white hunters are sporting claws and fangs and trophies and, mm-hmm. and Luke just wants to sit around and get soused and like not talk to anybody. It says there's a line that I think is really pretty great that uh Luke Honey hadn't spoken to him much either in re- referring to Galtero or Enrique. He says, after years in the wilderness, he usually talked to himself, which at first you think, well, maybe this dude's like talking out loud and he's being a bit crazy, but it's not. He just has like this internal monologue that he's running with here. Right. He uh, is, he is a, he is a haunted solo individual. Like he's, he's isolated. But who is he haunted by? That's a good question. And it's revealed to us slowly in, in dreams, right? That something happened to his younger brother uh, back when they were kids. Yep. And those dreams kind of, kind of are the precursors for the, the, the real horror that is to come. Yeah. We have uh, Luke honey within uh, the carriage or what passes for the, the transport getting to the black Ram lodge, which is, out overlooking Old Town, which, as you would guess from the name of that town, is a relatively old town, and it seems like we're just <laughs> outside uh, the lights of Seattle, as it's described. But we're mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere, and we get the get the sense here, like this is before World War II, so we're somewhere in between the Great War and the Second One, uh, and it's it's the wild pacific northwest so they are at some old lodge that lies outside of an even older town that has a deep dark history and you know the name of the the lodge is the black ram lodge so go with that yeah old town on the outskirts of townsville in the state of state yep <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, outside of Seattle by miles of dirt road and forested hills. Like this is this is rural. It is it is uh, uh, also not idyllic, as we come to find out. Yeah, and so the first time, so I've read this story twice over. Uh, the first time that I read this story, I recall it being a bit hard to keep these various characters straight. Yes. Uh, and I counted that as uh, uh, strikes against the story. The second time around, I busted out a highlighter, <laughs> and, and <laughs> I and I I think I read through the story a bit more purposefully, and it mm. made a whole lot more sense. And honestly, enough time had passed between this reading just like uh, yesterday versus like a year or so ago. So, so there's, there's more time. Like, like I didn't necessarily know the plot beat by beat. I knew where it was going, but I didn't like it. I, I didn't remember it all. And so, so reading it through a bit more purposefully, this is written in a very contemporary fashion where nothing is laid out explicitly for you. So, so there's a variety of characters and time and, the events do not clearly manifest on the page. It's up to you, the reader, to tease apart the words that Laird Barron's writing. Because in a couple places, he just sort of like, like goes off the rails with his statements as far as like what's happening yeah. in the world. And you're like, what? Like WTF? I don't even get yeah. <laughs> like how we're going with this plot. And you have to like reread a section to to stay on the train. But like at this point, where they're at the Black Ram Lodge, you're quickly introduced to about a half dozen different characters here that are all various states of civilized and foppish upper class. I guess that's kind of the best way to describe it. So we have Liam Wellick Esquire and Doctor Lanscombe. We've got Bullard and Weasley. Uh, you mean Wesley. We- you mean Wesley. Wesley. Yeah, but he's but, the Weasley son of a bitch. That's right. That's what uh, Luke Honey thinks when he looks at him. He thinks that's that's Mr. Weasel. <laughs> uh, we have Mr. Williams, who is a Texan. So he's an American. And becomes his buddy. Right? right. Like, he's probably the NPC that we become most connected to throughout this story. Right. Yeah, he's he's a touchstone here. Yeah. Um, he looks like Sam Elliott. That's yeah. right. <laughs> a bluff, weather-beaten rancher, attired in Stetson boots, corduroys, and an impressive buckle. A starch shirt and an immaculate Stetson hat. Immaculate. He drank Jack Daniels. That's mm. right, and he, he like passes off his bottle to to yeah. apparently a drunk. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. you cannot imagine Luke just like sipping little bits on this. He's like no, swallowing he takes, it down. He takes big pulls. Yep. Uh, so Bullard and Wesley are the two Brits, right? Yep. Uh, Bullard is wearing a gold-rimmed monocle and has a cavalry saber at his side. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, fought I, briefly in the... In the Boer War, yeah, and, right. and and then went on to fight, you know, some of those, uh, some of those, some of those Indians over in India, where we just sort of like showed up and, and <laughs> like, how does he word it? He says uh, he pacified people in Punjab. Yeah, yeah, the wogs in air quotes. So, so this dude is is certainly like representation of of civilized Britain. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, and this is a very Howardian introduction to these people because what are they doing? They're sitting around bullshit and, and telling stories and, sure yeah and having a, a good time around a fire and alcohol and it's and a like tail session and servants are like c- constantly it's like like bandying about like filling up glasses like at no oh. point is it are you mistaken with 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 who is uh you know in the in the point of privilege in these stories and it, it's kind of cool to see the americans and how they're responding to things versus how you have the stodgy sort of like like euro 
like old world, old, like like no, I was gonna say like old money versus new money because that's kind of how it plays out. You've it got is, like yeah. you've got like uh, like like English civilization and, and a variety of European uh, uh, upper class, and then you have like the the new the new frontier upper class too. Yeah, the assembly was supremely merry when the tall tale tailing began. We were in Mexico, Lord Boyd said. In one summer of nineteen <laughs> I say. The war had just ended. Some industrious friends of mine were visiting from Europe, moaning and sulking about the shutdowns of their munitions factories and the like. Quite, Quite right. <laughs> you guys are good. <laughs> just, it's a very European thing. And then they all break out into this like, oh, well, quite trying, I'm sure. Such a time to be the makers of bombs and guns. Uh, we're getting descriptions of some of these characters as Dr. Lanscombe is is possessing the aesthetic bearing of Eastern European royalty. So he's probably tall, kind of razory looking, perhaps. Yeah. Sharp angles to most of his, his his appearance. He had gone to Harvard and owned at least a quarter of everything there was to own within two con- counties. <laughs> not countries. <laughs> That's a lot of Mr. stuff. Mr. Liam Wellock was also tall, but he was thick and broad with the neck and hands of an ancient Greek statue of Heracles. So he was a big feller. Looks like Luke and I. <laughs> yep. Wait, stout with my with with all of my dark Grecian locks that, yeah. <laughs> that you, follow. <laughs> you could one could easily mistake you for a statue of a, a Greek god. Yes, but they're they're talking about war is over. That there's this interim period that they're discussing where nobody's fighting a big war. Although they point out that there are territorial skirmishes underway that could keep coins flowing. The Balkans, for example, or even Africa. It's a lack of imagination, says Mr. Williams, the bluff weather beaten rancher baron. And uh, <laughs> it's just that they're money people talking about how they can make money off of, of killing people. Right, off of the backs of, of, of a variety of different peoples in a variety of different places. Like, And they point out, Germany is sharpening its knives, <laughs> Mr. Briggs says. Your friends will be cranking up the assembling lines within five years. Trust me, they have a taste for blood, those krauts. Apologies to our German listeners. <laughs> but, you can't I, beat that out of them. My mistress is Bavarian, so I know. I love I love that as the justification. But I know. BDSM tones there. Yeah. Bullard, so, though, he, he says, Harumph! Mexico City, 1919. <laughs> get into the accent. Bloody hot. Asthma, thick and gray from smoke stacks and chimneys of all those hovels oh, yeah. that heap like ruddy anthills. Dreadful, yes. Wesley says it reminds me of home. And they're just, I don't know, they're just going on. <laughs> Mr. Weasel here, Luke Honey, he doesn't have any time for Wesley or seemingly any of the English people in the party. I love it, dude. So so in the in the opening scene, you have this, this brief exchange between Luke and the bartender and references to the civilized women that are on vacation or at least like staying at the the same the same location that Luke Honey's at and you get a uh, a brief introduction of like uh of of the differences in class but in this this portion here Luke Honey is like the he is the savage or the 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 lower class that is educated and is part of the conversation. So there's, there's other people that are like serving 
the upper class at play here. But like Luke Honey is the guy that is educated enough and is privileged enough, at least within his standing, that he starts giving a little bit of lip. And I love like the delivery here that he makes against Wesley. He's escaped the station to an extent, but he still leads safaris. He is not the he's right. the hunter that, that gets hired. Right. He's not the rich man who hires the safari leader. So he, I think he does have a chip on his shoulder over some of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that he appreciates this story that they tell, which introduces some of the supernatural to us, right? That's right. So we've got like a great a great boar, like there's there's a variety of of uh, wild hogs that are being chased across across some some portion. Are they in? Like, I think they're in Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, uh, and ultimately we get this 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 depiction of a deep dark cave, and that's something that comes up a couple different times throughout the story. And it's a symbol that I referenced, and I started trying to keep track of the number of times that it's that is referenced here. But but ultimately we have. Uh, privileged men that are going into the uncivilized barbaric world and at least a couple of them get in over their head and that's that's a trope that that plays out again within the current plot of the story and so rather than going after the big uh scary mythical boar that quarry that they were actually after they decide to take some of the smaller boars and leave these caves where they say that certain nights you can hear men screaming within their depths. Yep. And they they head back out of there. And Luke Honey gives it to him here, doesn't he, John? Yeah, he says, oh, well, if only... Uh, who are the explorers he, he mentions? Cabot and Drake, right? Yeah, Cabot and Drake. Could, couldn't see you fellas quailing in the face of fear. Bullard sputtered, <laughs> Wesley rose quickly, and put his hand on a large ornamental pin- pistol. And he says, I demand satisfaction. So, it's definitely the beginning of a rivalry here. And there's been American expats. There's been people telling tales through the guts of pigeons and chickens. And dead men lost in caves forever. So it's, it's a good story, but Luke Honey is not impressed. And it's not just the whiskey. Like this is his outlook on life. That there's nothing to that to him. That it doesn't impress him that these people experienced a ghost story essentially. Yeah. And uh, he he challenges them right on it. He you know he calls them cowards and almost gets himself in a duel with Mister Weasel. I love like I have here written out pitch perfect. He says his smile referencing Wesley. Uh, was sharp and vicious, and Luke Honey had little doubt the man yearned for moments such as these. Like, that is a perfect characterization for this pompous son of a bitch who just, like, he gets his kicks thinking that he's uh, the finest Englishman that's gonna, like, duel a duel and just be all up in somebody's face and get all indignant when when his honor has been besmirched or his buddy. It just... It, he's an it, early 20th century Twitter egg. Yeah, he's he's hip. Yeah, he's it's and and so like I I think it's interesting here this story clearly has a lot of statements about class and civilization uh 
they get they get wrapped up into it and i i love that luke honey like here in a few lines we're gonna get to the point here where luke basically dismisses the limey bastard for being like like you know just an upper class uh uh you know driver of the imperial conquest and luke honey is truly a howardian like irish like embodiment of that that badass up by your bootstrap like like pull yourself up by your boots uh self-educated man but he is like dismissive of wide swaths of of the group here just on the basis of nationality like he himself is making stereotypes you know too and i think that's something interesting to 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 recognize so after the squabbling after the uh, brits finish their story dr lanscombe and the other host, uh, Liam Willick, sort of get into their purpose for inviting everyone here, right? I suppose you're wondering why I've summoned you here tonight. <laughs> see me coming. <laughs> uh, as you know, there are plenty of bored deer on this preserve, but assuredly you've come for this great stag known as Blackwood's Baby. What, 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 what? <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to do Were I here for the namesake of this fine establishment? What of the Black Ram? Uh, there was never a Black Ram. It was a euphemism for, well, that's a story for another evening. <laughs> What's the goat's name and the witch? Black Phillip. So, what they're saying is that uh, this, to to the person who kills... This ran or this stag, which is the the mightiest specimen of stag that you have ever hunted. He's the king of these woods and is descended from a venerable line. Um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We find out more about that later. Uh, anyone who kills the stag shall claim my great grandfather's Sharps model eighteen fifty one as a prize. The rifle was custom built for Constantine Lanscombe the third by Christian Sharps himself and is nearly priceless. The victorious fellow shall also perforce earn a place among the hallowed ranks of elite gamesmen the world over. And $10,000 sterling silver. Huzzah! Ready for the hunt? They're going to uh, hunt up the the largest deer that's ever been seen. Yes, quite right. There's <laughs> harumph. A deer? I, I could hunt a deer. And it's been going on for some number of years, right? Well, we don't know that yet. But okay. yes, we come to find out in just a bit that this is an annual event. By invitation only. <clears throat> the second interlude here is sort of all about Luke Honey running back into Mr. Wesley and having it out with him. Yeah, this this was brutal. Like They get into a bit of a fist fight. There's no guns, there's a knife involved, but... It never gets used, and Luke Honey gets the better end of the the beating in the moment. It would appear, right? Yeah, not not in the long run. Um, no. And really, this this was sort of egged on by uh, Mister Wesley. Like he comes out, he rolls his sleeves up. He's like, "There you are, mate. There you yeah. are, mate." <laughs> it's fit, flips fist- him onto his back like a turtle. Yeah. And slams him into the the ground in the wet straw. So Wesley gets a shot in the ribs, but Luke Honey 
can't breathe at the end. And, and Mr. Wesley says, well, that's it then. And he stood over him for a moment, face shiny, slick hair in disarray. He scooped up his bowler, scuffed it against his pant legs, and smiled. And then he clapped the bowler to his head and limped off. There's a man in the stables there, Mr. Williams, who says, should I call a doctor, kid? And Luke Cunney says, no, he's okay. Me, I'm going to rest here a bit. And it just seems a bit funny. It's like it's a moment of, of humorous interlude before we get into the actual hunt. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's pretty much the only uh, levity that we have, I think. Right. And uh, William says, what do you have against these limeys anyway? My grandfather chopped cotton and my father picked potatoes. So is he Irish? I guess that's it, right? He's an Irish, uh, you know, low, cra- low class. He's not necessarily Southern, right? But we get the... The, that same sort of feel yeah rural poor salt of the earth kind of kind of guy from a well there's there's also some talk in the next part about spending a lot of time in south africa right yeah that, I guess that it... luke honey has family there so i wonder if he doesn't have if he doesn't have a side in the battle of the boar whore oh oh good call like maybe luke honey he says that he's got some Dutch family down in South Africa, or he's just got family in South Africa. And the, the Brits are trying to hold on to South Africa at this point. So maybe that's why he doesn't like them. Yeah, could be. Good thinking. It seems as though Baron really is kind of weaving all of this global historical tapestry behind the scenes in this story that doesn't have a, a large bearing on the plot but adds flavor to to the proceedings, I think. And some of the the other flavor here is finding out why Luke Honey is interested in hunting this stag. He's the great white hunter, according to some jokes that are getting told, that he hunts on the dark continent. He shoots lions and elephants. Fortunes to be won in the ivory train. And but here he is hunting a deer. So why is he there, Luke? Uh He's bored and he has a feel that his, like, he recounts a dream, right? That, that the, the bottom line is, uh, that his mom might not want him to be doing these, these horrible bits of killing, right? And so the way that Briggs states it, he says, are you saying you quit safaris because your mother might disapprove from her cloud in heaven? And then... Uh, Honey replies, nope, I'm worried she might be disapproving from an ice flow in hell. So we don't necessarily get a clear view of of how Luke Honey views his mom, but he recounts a bit of dreaming that that suggests that that he feels a metaphysical reasoning to come back Mm -hmm. to the States. The symptoms that he describes, like he describes standing next to a mountain of, of tusks and being drunk and it being hot and him just kind of getting sick and throwing up everywhere as these newspaper people were, were taking photos and he catches a fever and he's in bed and he's hallucinating and he sees this, uh, uh, vision of his mom. He thinks the devil's hiding under his cot. Like to me, it sounds like he's got malaria. Right. Right. Yeah. He's given some quinine and that heals him up yeah, a little he gets bit. Some quinine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Which so, causes bad dreams. Oh, okay. Does it really? Yeah, that's one of the side effects of quinine. You can have very vivid nightmares. So don't drink G&Ts before bed? That 
that has been said, yes, that if you drink tonic water, you can end up with some nightmares. Hmm. Not us tonight. We've got Not beer, us tonight. beer and whiskey. Bourbons. So we're on the hunt. Uh, at one point, Lord uh, Bullard shoots a, a buck. You know, they're they're talking about logistics of hunting. Luke Honey only brings a couple rifles, uh, a forty-five, and some knives. Like he travels pretty light compared to everyone else, right? Who who need a lot of uh, help with all of their gear. Um, it just seems like he's he's a man among men. We also meet Scobie, who is the uh, the master of the kennels at uh, the Black Ram Lodge. And we also meet Arlen, who is... Uh, yeah, I guess I thought that Arlen was Scobie's son. Is that, how it's, is that how it's portrayed? I think. I think that it is, but maybe I'm just reading some, some meta text that isn't really there. But as we move through, I think we'll figure it out. But uh, we meet Arlen, who is a young relative of Scobie and, and helps out with the dogs. And there's there's hunting and there's there's eating, there's getting sick from the eating. It seems that the British don't listen to some of them and end up with like deer dysentery. Is that fair to say, Luke? Yeah, yeah. They're eating uh, some 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 sweet meats that should be aged a bit, but but they're eating them like hot, like straight out of the the carcass, and it's it's going to give them a, a case of the trots, a case of the shits, right? Like <laughs> like the the more ill the the more well informed folks are saying, hey dude, ease ease up. Like I know you're tough, but you don't have to go eat the liver and the heart of this animal that you just right. slayed. Like let the meat rest for a day or two. <laughs> and and not only that, but Wesley is is not well. He seems to be rather sickly, just after a day's exertion. Luke Honey faintly hopes that he has one foot in the grave. Yeah. That he, that Go ahead, John. He he just doesn't have a very favorable view of this man. No, not a bit. And, and kind of kind of hopes that him favoring his ribs when he laughs, Mr. Wesley, that is, that, that means his appendix has ruptured. He's got the Houdini syndrome. He's going to be well on his way out the door. He got him with but, the... the, the what is it? The five finger heart exploding. The death right. Yeah. The yeah. death punch. But that all sort of fades into the background when they start talking about where they're at, which is a creepy area. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. Uh, this is, this area is known as Wolf's Vale, And there's some local folklore that suggests that, uh, the devil himself, uh, roams these hills. The settlers considered this an evil place. No one logs this forest. No one hunts here except for the lords and foolish and desperate townies. People know not to come here because of the dangerous animals that roam. These days it's the wild beast, but in the early days it was mostly Bill. Was Bill some rustic lunatic? We Texans know the type. Oh, oh no, sirs. Black Bill. Splayfoot Bill. He's the devil. He's Satan. And those who carved the town from these hills and before them, the trappers and fishermen, they believe he ruled these dark woods. The Indians believed it too. I've talked with several of the elders, as did my grandfather and the tribal wise men of his era. The legend of Bill, whom they referred to as the Horned Man, is most ancient. I confess, some of my ancestors were a rather scandalous lot, 
given to dabbling in the occult and all matters mystical, the town library's archives are stuffed with treatises composed by the more adventurous founders and myriad accounts by landholders and commoners alike regarding the weird phenomena prevalent in Ransom Hollow. I, many a village child vanish, and grown men and women too. When I was wee, my father brought us in by dusk and barred the door tight until morning. Everyone did, some still do. But what breaks up this this sort of satanic discussion is none other than diarrhea. Yep. Lord Buller lurches to his feet and makes for the woods, hands to his belly. All the Texans guffaw and hoot, and all the wood the mood is sobered. It eventually because wolves begin to howl. That's right. So everybody retires, everybody beds down, and this is one of those points within the story where uh, if you're just reading quickly and you're not digesting things sentence by sentence, it just sort of goes off the rails, right? And so uh, quickly everybody goes to bed, and at that point we enter sort of a dreamy state here. And, And it's hard to tell what's real and what's not, but regardless, Luke Honey gets the sense that something uh, swirls and moves within the mist into camp, right? And so so Luke Honey's nostrils are filled with the mist, uh, and in total it seems as if uh, bestial forces sort of visit the camp and take take stock of things, right? And I, 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 I italicize, or I didn't italicize, I, I highlighted a handful, like there's, the, the terms bison, rhino, beast, uh, hyena, and lion, like all used to describe whatever comes into the, the camp. And it almost seems as if it's, it's a mini, a mini formed horror that's, that's hitting on creatures that Luke honey would recognize. And he hears the, the shrill notes of a pan pipe. That's right. Yeah. And, and chuckling and chuckling. (laughs) So, so this is, uh, a mixing and melding of, 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 uh, of beasts and, and wilderness, like, uh, uh, like magics, right? Like we're we're getting Seder and and the, the great God pan being sort of flavored in here. Right. That's right. Yeah. So this, this animal is, you know, Luke Honey, again, is kind of perceiving this in a dream, but uh, the, the beast is taking several forms yep. all at once. And they all awake, right? The next, the next morning, things are... Sort of. Uh, Mr. Wesley, he's, he's mostly a lump. Chin yeah. <laughs> right. on his chest. He looks chest. like hell warmed over. Yeah. <laughs> you might have done him in, boy. I, somebody says he should start. He should call it a day. <laughs> yeah, it's morning. We just got up. Uh, <laughs> Lance Gomes of Sawbones. He isn't blind. Guess I'll leave it to him. Uh, Luke Honey conveys a story about a time a, a Spaniard kicked or, or uh, uh, got got hit in the gut in the ribs. And it sounds like a, a Steve Costigan tale. Kind of does. And a Scottish dragoon and a big Spaniard. The the Spaniard shoots the the Scot, but the Scot got him in the ribs, and then four days later, that Spaniard died. So we we know right now, if we didn't already, the the ultimate looming fate of Mister Wesley. 
but we get just a little backstory. I don't want to belabor it, but we start to find out that 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 Luke Honey it, he's a bit of an oddity to these people. It doesn't seem right that he's there, right, Luke? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he seems to be here by the circumstances of fate, but also by the way he describes it of his own accord. Like he's familiar with this uh with this story and with the superstition. So his parents lived close by. Uh, and he like, he says like, as I was a kid, I only heard bits and pieces. The men got all liquored up and told tales. I heard about the stag and then decided I'd drill it when I got older, like inferring that he would kill it. Uh, here you are. Sure enough. <laughs> Why? And I know you don't give a wit about the rifle or the money. So he seems to be a figure that's that's totally comfortable with fear, right? Like like I I think about Luke Honey and he has to be uh he He'd is be a not, green lantern. Yeah, he's he and he welcomes he welcomes the the fear that mother nature should rightfully instill across things, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like he's I don't know. I I think about like how he would be portrayed and he would not be that 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 brash character he's he's more the the uncomfortable star of the story that that looks to be on the verge of like freaking out at any given moment and it seems like the circumstances really are kind of sweeping him along like he's observing these things as right as they happen like he even though he does take action against wesley and we see him take further action at the end of the story. He he really is just kind of observing things as they happen, right? It le- this whole conversation leads to one of my favorite quotes from this story, though, which is Luke Honey says, I've known fearless men. I've hunted lions with them. A few of those gents forgot that Mother Nature is more of a killer than we humans will ever be and wound up getting chomped. She wants our blood, our bones, our goddamn guts. Fear is healthy. Did that remind you of a line from Tombstone? That uh, Johnny Ringo says, I want your blood. Yeah. <laughs> I want your soul. I'll be your Huckleberry. I'm your Huckleberry. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, the, the Texan came here for this hunt back in 1916. Mm-hmm. So, they, these, these people all have personal history in this region in this area luke honey grew up nearby right he's from this area williams had an uncle come up here to to hunt the the stag and and um it it was a failure right he split his head on a rock after he took a shot at a at a deer and he ended up dying so, so these guys are bonding here is, I guess, the, the ultimate kind of takeaway. And there's a familial story that's being played out, which is the inescapability of, of, of fate, right? Like we get to that point that by the ending beats of the story, Luke Honey is a, a witness and knows that things are going to be horrible and can't do anything to rightly change the the outcome for for scoby right like that plays out and so to me that's uh that's you know that's we keep using the term lovecraftian and it's fine to use it in the correct sense like this is a lovecraftian trope right like the the inescapability 
of your lineage and of your uh, your overall like like family tree. That's that's part of what's playing out here. And so Williams is is captured within this this story just by circumstance of being born to the family he was. And Luke Honey, for for even worse reasons, is is tied into it too. Uh, but their their connection here, their conversation is interrupted because they find out that the the stag has been spotted. Scobie picked up the trail, and Lanskim and the the Brits are in hot pursuit of it, and so they take off to give chase as well. And they come upon a pretty horrifying scene, right? Yeah. Lots of all dead hell dogs. broke loose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> An hour later, all hell broke loose. Uh, and so we have uh, the Brits firing in unison. Uh, Luke, uh, Luke Honey caught a glimpse of what first he thought took to be a stag, but it was, it was Blackwood's baby barreling past, and there is just death and destruction in its wake. And at this point, we have uh arlen gone missing right that's right yeah arlen is is gone no one really knows where he went it's scoby's relation here his his blood uh this thing the the stag gored a couple of the dogs and was evidently prancing around and shaking its head back and forth with the dogs impaled on its antlers like it it's it's a pretty twisted sounding scene yeah So now the object becomes, we've got to find Arlen. He's, he's gone. Um, and now the dogs are dead. So, so Scobie, who is a, 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 a peasant, like savant, the way he's described, like he is a, he is a man of the woods and of the dogs and of the trappings. Uh, and his, his boy, as it's referred, as he refers to him, has gone missing and so the squeeze that plays out from here on is do the upper crusts get the hell out of there because it's dangerous or do they stick around and look for an innocent boy? And that's, that's really the, the final stage that plays out here. Uh, and so there's, there's at least a half hearted attempt to look around for, for the boy on, on that current day. And, and Luke honey makes, makes an, uh, a horrible discovery. He walks into uh, a small grove, and as it's described here, it's twisted and shaggy trees. I can't help but make comparisons. Like at this point, like previously in the story, there's references to caves and dens of animals as like the as like the uh, the ultimate source of of darkness and evil within the story. But it seems like after. After the mention of, oh, I guess practically like Ambrose Bierce and a lot of the other authors that are name dropped, it says like a couple pages previously, Luke Honey had been an avid reader since childhood of Robert Louis Stevenson, M.R. James, and Ambrose Bierce. And from that on, he said, musty books with wooden covers and woodblock illustrations raise the hair on his head. The evil stepmother made to dance in red hot iron shoes at Snow White's garden Hansel and Gretel lost in a vast, endless wood, and the eyes of thousand demons glittered in the shadows. From this point forward, we start to see references to the deep, dark wood. And so from what happens here, Luke Honey steps into the deepest, darkest grove of the woods here. And he comes upon the site of uh, uh, ill ceremonies 
and like what would be like altars to old gods. Yeah, he finds a, a horrifying statue that's that's a horned uh, god of some some sort. Uh, the statue, a tall, crumbling marble stack, ghastly white and stained black by moss and mold, a terrible horned man or god. This was an idol to a dark and vile other, and it radiated a palpable aura of wickedness. So here we get a shift to, uh, like, the the dream state, right? Like, the descriptions that play out over the next couple paragraphs. So it's pretty hard to tease apart, like, what's real and what's what's in his head. The fog the, goes in again, right? Yeah. The fog crept into Luke Honey's mouth, trickled into his nostrils, and his gorge rebelled. Something struck him across the shoulders. He lost balance, and all the strength in his legs drained, and he collapsed and lay supine, squashed into the wet earth and leaves by an imponderable force. This force was the only thing keeping him from sliding off the skin of the earth into the void. He clawed the dirt. Worms threaded his fingers. Get behind me, devil, he said. I love this section. This is my favorite part of the story. Uh, This is where the horror is really kind of gripping me. Skip forward a paragraph and he says, Fresh blood is best, the statue said, although it was Luke Honey's mouth that opened and made the words, Baby blood, boy child blood, rich, red, sweet, rare boy blood. What, little man, what could you offer the lord of the dark? What, you feeble fly? His jaw contorted, manipulated by invisible fingers. His tongue writhed at the bidding of the other. A choir of corrupt angels sang from the darkness all around, a song sweet and repellent, and old as Melville's sea and its inhabitants. Sulfurous red light illuminated the fog, and impossible shapes danced and capered as if beamed from the lens of a magic lantern. And so we get at this point uh, the full reveal of what happened with uh, with Luke Honey and his brother, and I guess even more specifically with his mother. So basically, what I gather here is that there's an accidental shooting of Luke Honey's brother, uh, Michael, by by Luke. Uh, and shortly after that, his mother died, a broken woman, and he's sent east to live with family, and then he even seeks out destinations further east and he goes to the the deep dark heart of africa after he goes to college and so so he's escaping this this accident this existential joke that's played out upon him the way that i take it there's not a lot that's given here as far as this backstory but it's terrific like this is the true horror of the story and so all of this horrific imagery is broken up by the, the Texan Williams who comes in and, and says, you were laughing and, and, uh, carrying on. Uh, I like that. He says, sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> my, my uncle told me about these damn things said rich townies that weren't followers of Christ to put it politely, had him shipped in and set up here and there across the estate. God's from the old world. So, you know, further kind of, setting the scene setting the 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 stage of the countryside as uh, a killing ground or a sacrificial altar to uh these ancient gods and somebody's about to die that's right and it's it's not luke honey <laughs> although it could mr have, weasel yeah i guess it could have turned out to have been luke honey but it's not so 
in the morning. Turns out Wesley dies. He had a fever. He was he was not looking good. They they didn't tell any stories that night. It rained. It's a it's a bad night. And then in the morning, Wesley is gone. And there's some dissension now, right, Luke, about whether they should stay out there or or whether they should go back. Yeah, so at this point you get the the strong support uh, across the board outside of uh, SCOBY to, to just head out. Like at this point, we've done what we can do, obligatory statements, and we look for the dude, we got to get out of here. Uh, Arlen's lost. Uh, we got to leave it to the authorities, right? And we get some statements at, around this point that, you know, uh, Splitfoot has been placated, right? Like one, one, one time a year you get uh, the appropriate sacrifices made and it sucks, but Hey, it's got to happen. Right? Like that's kind of the way that we get it spelled out by Luke honey in, especially with his descriptions and his discussions with Williams. Right. But, but overall people are, are, uh, <laughs> like they're um, scared. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're scared and they're, they're, they're being weenies. They're just going to get on and out of there. Yep. Well, there's some anger too because of this Wesley death. That Bullard says, you know, you're going to answer for this to Luke Honey, and pretty much saying like, I might kill you once we get back to the lodge. Although, wouldn't it be easier and better to just kill him out here? But it's not very gentlemanly. That's fair. So they head back, except Luke Honey kind of wanders off right like he he goes off on his own and this 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 is the build-up to the the end the last set piece of the tale and this is the part that i had to read several times to to begin to grasp so i'll ask you guys does luke honey wander away from the party at large and is it because he knows that blackwood's baby is coming yes <laughs> I, I, you yeah, think, my, okay. my interpretation, there's no explanation, right? Like my interpretation is that at this point, Luke Honey hangs back intentionally and bears witness to the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Scobie, right? Right, uh, and it's because like Luke Honey has all his life been damned by just by, by circumstance and by chance. And that's the, that's the sad, like cosmic horror joke that's played out on the pages here that he has been running for years. He's been around the world, but he can't escape it through drink or through killing elephants. And he's been drawn back and he's bearing witness to this playing out. And what actually like happens after Scobie's death, I don't necessarily know. Like if he just stays there and he himself is sacrificed by by Blackwood's baby. Uh I don't know. But but he he's cannot escape his fate and he sees that Scobie's boy like his hands are left, right? Like that's what's cast aside. Like he almost sees like a vision of of the fate of this fellow, but it's nothing that anybody else is privy to the way that things play out. And so ultimately Scobie is thinking that he has a chance to save his boy by sacrificing, uh, honey, but it like honey just knows that, that, 
the devil's not going to play that, right? Like, his game is to, to take the, the house. He's going to take everybody. Right. Yeah, I guess so. I, I like, And he's already got Luke. Like, the way he spells it, he's like, you know, I was damned. Like, <laughs> before this story even began, which is the sad, like, the sad realization that comes through, that that he, his story, like, the ending of his story was already written before we started picking up the pieces. Like, that's the very noir sort of elements, that he was damned before it even began. We know that every year, somebody dies in this hunt. And that is that sort of replicates the old sacrifices that once happened in this hollow, right? Or on, on in this forest. So, my interpretation was that Arlen dies. He does die. He's gone. He's gone. But but it is not it is not an acceptable sacrifice. Right? Like it, it it's I didn't grasp it that it it's the devil or Blackwood's baby or whatever saying I'm taking everybody this year. Uh-huh. It which ultimately it seems like that's what happens. But I took it to mean that Arlen however he died it wasn't enough to satisfy the requirements of the sacrifice. So something else was needed. Lucani shows up and says, I've come to help you find the boy. And Arlen's gone. He's gone, Scobie says, lowering his weapon, his arm quivering in exhaustion. You don't believe that, Lucani says, with a steadiness born of staring down savage predators, of waiting to pull the trigger that would drop them at his feet, of facing certain death with a coldness of mind inherent to the borderline mad. The terror remained, ready to sweep him away. I'm warned of the bone. There's nothing left in me, Scobie says. He seems to wither, to shrink into himself in despair. The stag is wounded. I think you hit it again, judging from the racket, Lucani says. It don't matter. You can't kill a thing like that. Scobie's eyes glitter with tears. This is the devil's preserve, Mr. Honey. Every acre. You should have gone with the masters, got yourself away. We stayed too long and we're done for. He only pretends to run. He'll end the game and come for us soon. And who shows up? Well, I mean, Scobie takes him to an immaculate kind of uh, killing ground, right? Like the my impression was that this is where Luke Honey had his vision earlier of, of the, the, the devil. Right. And uh, he's dressed it for the sacrifice and Blackwood's baby shows up. But rather than letting himself be killed or devoured, Luke Honey snatches a rifle and smashes Scobie in the, in the gut. And Scobie himself is the sacrifice. Scobie says, don't make me beg you, Mr. Honey. Don't make me do what's right for that innocent boy. I know the Lord's in your heart. Luke Honey reached out for Scobie's arm and patted it. You're right about one thing. God help you. Skip forward a bit. And uh, Scobie has been knocked down. He's kneeling before this devil stag that's coming into the field. And it says Luke Honey's eyes blurred with grief. And Michael's shade materialized there. His trusting smile disintegrating into bewilderment, then inertness. The cruelness of the memory drained Luke Honey of his fear. He said with dispassion, my hell is to testify. Don't you understand? He doesn't want me. 
He took me years ago. And then the uh, the stag moves towards Scobie, its muzzle unhinged, the teeth closed, and there was a sound like a ripe cabbage cracking apart. <sighs> Luke Honey slumped against the bowl of the oak, the rifle a dead, useless weight across his knees, and watched. And so I, I do kind of have a hard time unpacking the ending. I think Luke Honey's in hell. I think he's he's not going to be taken next. He's going to wander back out into the world, and wherever he goes, he's just going to have to continue to think about like what he's seen here. What is what is the meaning of your name, Luke? Light. L-I-G-H-T, right? It's sort of derived from uh, Lucifer, isn't it? Oh, yeah, like the Morning Star? The bright one, the one born at dawn. Are we going to summon Satan now? No. Lord, no. Okay. Get behind me, devil. (laughs) I just feel like it's an indicator. I, I don't think that Luke Honey was named Luke on accident. He is... He's inherently tied to the devil in this story. Do you agree, other Luke? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I think he is the witness, and I think he's he's not necessarily like taking the good news out to the good people. He is the one that's damned to know the true like uh, uh, accounting of records at this this messed up bohemian grove of of like of like Seattle back like before World War II. Like he's the one that's going to be carrying this this damned story in his head and that is his hell. Uh like and that that hell is is laid upon him by by cosmic like just randomness and that's that's the 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 horror of it the fact that he himself like uh, we don't get that he murdered his brother we get that he accidentally like his brother accidentally died at his hand Mm -hmm. right and as a like beyond that his mother's death is on his hands and the story that plays out here is that scoby's boy arlen's death is on his hands and Scobie's death is on his hands, and he's witnessing all of these ill acts by the devil, and he's just going to have to witness it because the devil's already taken him. Like his punishment, and it's 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 messed up because he shouldn't be punished, right? Like he's he hasn't done necessarily anything wrong other than to be born into this life, and that in and of itself is the is the cosmic horrific joke. Like that's the way I interpret it, uh, and that's. Like he's the one that's bearing witness, and so I think it's interesting, like this counterpoint to like say the coroner that has all of the news and the damn thing. Mm. There's differences there in accountability and the consequences of knowing these new the these bits of information. Uh, so like the coroner of the damn thing, he's just like refu- the way I interpret it. He's like he's not he's refusing to believe and he's just like taking a couple of different pieces of the puzzle that he could easily splice together and get the full story that would blow his mind. And he's saying, I'm not going to do it here. We have Luke honey who has no choice, but to confront these issues. And that in and of itself is, 
is hell and is the horror. What's your take, John? Yeah, I, I, I had a tough time making a take on it. I couldn't tell if Luke was in hell, was hell. I, I, I like hearing what Luke had to say. Our Luke, not Luke Honey. Uh, just because it helps to sort of parse out some of this. So thanks, Luke. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm, this is a complicated story, and there's not a direct, clear interpretation of it, right? Like, it, right. it, it steps into Bonkers Town, and you have to make your own interpretations as far as like, what does it mean that Luke Honey just sort of like sacrifices Scoby and just sort of like plops down? It's like the ending of like, uh, like that movie, The Ninth Gate, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what yeah. the, what the f does that all mean? Like, yeah, what, right. like there's some level of unsettlement by just not knowing what the end of the story properly is. But this is, this is like a lot of Laird Baron type stories or a lot of Laird Baron stories play with this, this ending type of note. You have to think about what the overall like theme or like what's, what's the, what's the ending notes as far as how you feel on the inside, right? Like, like the emotion of it is just as important, I think, as the, the final statement as far as like where the plot is left hanging. And it's a sad, it's a sad plot note. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, it is. That, that was my impression. I was just sad at the end of the story. Yeah, it is. It is sad and it's horrifying because you don't want to be in Luke Honey's position, right. right? Like you don't, you don't want to be him. Um, I wondered, so we, we actually were going to cover this story last year mm-hmm. and I was not ready. Um, and, and in reading this story last year and rereading it for this year's episode, um, I, I guess I I went through several versions of my own kind of headcanon of what happened here from Luke Honey was always an emissary of Blackwood's baby because he was raised here and this this malign influence has always been part of his life to uh, Luke Honey never really knew about Blackwood's baby until this hunt began and because of the interaction with the 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 dark um, idol that he has about, you know, three quarters of the way through the story. Uh, the, the Blackwood's baby kind of marks him then. Um, and, and is able to, because of his, the darkness that he has in his past. I, I didn't necessarily get that this was fate and this was always going to happen, but I got that, rather he got swept up in this and, and maybe the difference in what I'm saying and how I'm describing it and how, you know, you might describe it as fate is, you know, not, not really all that great, but it, it seemed to me that he is just swept up in these events that are larger than him that he cannot, he can't really do anything about. Um, and I guess the, the thing that I get bogged down in, with this story and it's not a slide against the story. I think it's a good story is, uh, why 
and we're not supposed to know why, right? Like maybe that's part of it. Like there, there is no why this is just, it is what it is. And this is what it is. Um, but I, I guess I, I can't come to terms with why this happens. I understand what happens, but I don't understand why. I think it's that's not for us to know why that's any, I think that's, I think that's intentional. And I think that gets at the, uh, if there's any number of protagonists within cosmic horror stories that, you know, pop the needle one more time or jump out the window or do any other number of things by circumstance, because they happen to have glimpsed that, that horrific Vista where they saw too much. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't, but there, there's something about this story that the 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 hook. I don't know that here. I think it's less a consequence of putting pieces together and more a consequence of just where and when you were born. The fact that we have Luke Honey born into a family adjacent to the presence of the devil (laughs) and having accidentally killed his brother and then having the blood of lots of different living things on his hands over his lifetime. It feeds into this, this story of him being the damned like witness to to death and and destruction of, of things. So so it's not just that he's in the end when he says uh, my hell is to testify. It's not that his hell is to testify to Blackwood's baby specifically. It's that his hell is to testify to all of these horrific things as they happen, and it's just going to keep happening. And yeah, this like is, he's this, the one this that's is not a special. It. This is not a special event. Just because just because there is this this supernatural entity here. It, it, it makes it feel more. I think he theatrical. Is, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like he, I think he is the one in like one in a million roll of the dice that happens to have this shitty lot in life to see all of these things playing out. It's not that he is then like touched and going to deliver the world the the great news of of uh, the gr- the great god. Blackwood's baby like he's not gonna spread that information it's just that he's the one that's got to live with the horror of knowing that uh that this is playing out year after year and there's no way to escape uh the march of these these civilized buttholes that keep like dragging people out into the wilds because of like some mix of imperialism and their feel that they're like conquering the world and you know maybe some weird like religion <laughs> that they're wrapping up into it like all of that stuff gets wrapped up like like on on a social like basic human level that's something that's get, getting pulled in but on top of that Luke Honey is the one that's uh bearing witness to the devil walking the earth like he's the one that that knows that the devil is real and he is there uh as the you know the, the 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 progeny of of blackwood and the devil themselves like like we have the son of satan as this this manifestation that's like 
demanding sacrifice and is killing the innocents, right? I don't know. I f- <laughs> you're, feeling, you're feeling around in the dark, right? Like you don't necessarily know the core explanation for what what the story is, right? And it's a lot of interpretation, but that's that's just the way that I that I that I'm like taking the 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 final beats of the story. The overall message of the story and the the main characterization and the main like bad guys air quotes i think are really just like like top notch this is this is a great story to me that really scares the scares the bejesus out of me oh the the ambiance and the setting and and the mythos and everything that is in this story and when i say mythos i don't mean cthulhu mythos i mean like that it creates its own mythology Mm -hmm. all of that is great so yeah i would i would easily recommend this to somebody and i think it's a, a gateway and into reading Laird Baron. And I think there's a good reason why this story appears first in the beautiful thing that awaits us all. And others, it's not, and other stories is it's just the beautiful thing that awaits us all. Sounds right. Yeah, I think so. I've never read any other Laird Baron stories, but I know that this one really creeps me out. And I, I want to know more about Luke Honey, which is a indicator of the strength of the writing there. And I want to know more about why he feels given over to this evil, but I'm satisfied with the fact that it's kind of left to, to my imagination. Good. A recommend all around. Yeah, absolutely. Right. What um, are we going to be looking at next in this spooktacular season that we call Crumptober? Well, if we can get back on the mics one, mics one more time, we'll probably be telling some some spooky tales of our own, right? That seems to be the the pattern that we try to to get into here. We're going to talk about some scary stuff that may have happened to us. That's right. So <laughs> that's what's coming up next on the uh, Chromecast, Chromtober, uh, Spooktacular. Until then, you can find us on the web at thechromecast.blogspot.com. You can email us, thecromcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the Chromecast, And you can call us and leave us some voicemail, 859-429-CROM. Join us, won't you, one more time as we get into the final stage of Chromtober. Seems, but thank you, Jack Daniels. Oh, number seven, Tennessee whiskey got me drinking in heaven, and our angels start to look good to me. They're gonna have to deport me to the fiery deep. Oh, thank you, Jack Daniels. Oh, number seven, Tennessee whiskey got me drinking in heaven, and I know I can't stay here too long, cause I can't go a week without doing wrong.
another body um <laughs> call me avon barksdale dropping bodies call you aaron burr from the way you're dropping hamilton <laughs> that was a wire joke followed by an snl joke <laughs> <laughs>